and Cole, who's been on an internship, has been around for four months or so. Nice to have you back, Cole. And all the new people, welcome. It's good to see you in the Buddhist Studies class. And it's a little different than some of the other programs that we have at Common Ground in the sense that uh, we try to, even with a big group like this, try to actively create community by committing to being here for these three weeks in this case. Now, some of you might have business or family obligations, and then it's, of course, okay not to be here. But if you can be at the class, then we expect people to come for the Buddhist studies classes. And uh, also, there's an expectation that you're working with the teachings at home. You know, each of us in our own way, but that uh, we're kind of using our participation in the class as a, like that responsibility makes it easier to do some work at home, to put aside some time to sit, maybe to put aside some time to study, or to just reflect on the teachings, what you remember, or maybe your notes if you're taking notes, do some of the reading that's been sent out. But that somehow you're working or engaging the teachings. And there's really an important part of the practice. You know, there's many places in the suttas and the discourses of the Buddha where he talks about the importance of remembering the teachings. And even, you know, they made a big deal of being able to recite the teachings. Like when all else fails, you can't control your mind or you can't control your life situation, just repeat the teachings to yourself. You know, out loud even, or at least out loud in your mind. That it's surprisingly potent. You know, like if we're in a really difficult Situation and it's triggering a lot of our not-so-skillful habits. You can imagine how um, stabilizing it would be if we could just make the mind repeat skillful instructions. Even if we couldn't necessarily do anything about it, you know, the force of the habit might be strong, but to have that tether that we at least remember that, you know, we're practicing kindness as opposed to believing in hatred or irritation. So if you, you know, find a particular teaching in the readings or in our discussions, talks, um, you know, it's really okay. It might be really useful just to memorize little bits and pieces or at least be able to paraphrase it in your mind. And, you know, a lot of people in the room have been practicing for a long time. And I know I've heard people in this room say, many people, more than a handful of people in this room, tell me how and share with the whole group how powerful it's been to be able to repeat, to be able to call upon some of the teachings that really resonate with your experience and just to be able to sort of access them. So that's one of the purposes of the Buddhist study series is, you know, it might take us four repetition. Now it's a six-year course. Uh, for some of you know, it used to be five years, but we keep expanding, taking on more of the lists that the Buddha used or the models that the Buddha used. But, you know, people in the room, some of them have gone through two of the five-year sequences or however long they've been. And, uh, you know, they're really designed to go through an infinite number of times because we're deepening, we're remembering more, we're more easily activating the teachings in ordinary moments and in our formal sitting times. And in, the, and in these sort of, originally they were conceptual or intellectual models, then they become something very much alive in the mind or heart. They're, 
you know, instead of being dependent on the words, on the conceptual map, it's like that's just a very uh, um, superficial thing that, you know, the Four Noble Truths or the metta as a practice, or it's like an alive thing. And this is the important things about metta, and it's, it's really the point of this three-week class. You know, we'll do an eight-week class on loving-kindness down the road. It's part of the you know, regular curriculum. But then once during the six-year period, we do a short like refresher. And not so much to work with the formal loving-kindness practice, which is just one particular skillful means with loving-kindness, but to particularly work with metta as an expression of wisdom, as an expression of right view. Not like a means to develop, but really a fruit of practice, like a fruit of the deepest insight is the capacity to be intimate, the capacity to care. You know, the, that way of um, that appropriate response, like responding to the moment with kindness, is what we're trying to do. I mean, do we need more freedom, more enlightenment, or more, you know, whatever you imagine, we imagine the fruit or the nth degree of practices. Do we need more than a loving, friendly heart toward all things? Would that be enough for us? I mean, would we be willing to be completely at ease, you know, asking only to have a loving, kind, compassionate relationship to all things? Would that be enough? Or do we need to be, you know, the glorious, radiant Buddha on top of the mountain with infinite psychic powers, <laughs> you know, and, you know, whatever kind of idealistic trip we have about enlightenment or about the fruit of the spiritual path? What would be missing from that scenario to be unconditionally sort of resting in an unconditional uh, kindness or intimacy, you know, an intimacy with everything. Non-contention is really the same as uh, the dropping of self-centeredness. It's the self-centeredness that makes us contentious because as soon as there is a sense of mark, you know, it comes with contention because then I have to defend whatever I take mark to be. And, you know, Mark is going to have preferences and have fears. And all of that causes us to struggle or to be contentious with one another, with the moment, with our breath, with our body sensations, with the temperature of the room. So, um, you know, as part of the work of the class, don't feel like you have to do the formal loving-kindness practice, although it's fine if, if you want to dig into that a little bit more than you normally do in your you know, daily practice routine. But instead, let's uh, especially emphasize a more creative, spontaneous, faith-based uh, work with metta, like the faith or the confidence that metta, the expression or the experience of kindness, of warmth, that it's like a, a basic law 
of the heart or mind. Like karma is a law that metta, that this isn't something that you or I have to create, but it's more about like having enough faith or interest to rediscover this potential, maybe we could say that we have, this potential to be intimate, this potential to drop contention, to drop the comparing mind, that, that it's that all of this stuff that we normally operate with in our mind, the sort of normal views and ways of being that we normally operate with, that they can be abandoned and we'll be left with something that's really fundamentally useful and beautiful, trustworthy. But it it takes some creativity and faith, confidence in the inherent goodness of the heart. But it's not personal, and this will help, actually. Because if we go looking for a personal quality of kindness, we'll miss it. So just keeping that in mind, that when, you know, in our moments, city moments, of course, but also daily life moments, and we remember, oh, yeah, I'm taking a class on metta, loving-kindness, and then we'll remember maybe this homework that we're taking on for these three weeks, you know, that, uh, that maybe, you know, to whatever, whatever faith we have, whatever confidence we have, maybe, perhaps, there's some really amazing capacity right now, here right now, to be intimate, to be non-contentious, not irritated, not fearful, not needy. This is another part of the lawfulness of metta, you know, one of the things we notice quite a bit because of our conditioning, people have heard me talk about this, but it's such a visceral way to find this or to reconnect, is we notice this inward gravitational pull. You know, we're always seemingly negotiating with life to get what we need, to get rid of what we don't need. And there's a sense, you know, it's about like bringing, taking care of me. Now, metta isn't, a, isn't against taking care of us, but the taking care of us, it, the point of view shifts from the one who needs to the one who's taking care of ourselves or taking care of others. So then it, <coughs> the perspective changes. Instead of the mind being fixated on the inward gravitational pull of our stories, <coughs> the mind then, or awareness, the knowing, notices the natural generosity of the way it is now. There is this natural giving. And it's always here. It's not like, this is what I meant, it's really important to understand it's not like we have to cultivate or make the mark who's going to be generous and then care for himself or be generous and care for others. It's like... uh, you know, with breathing, we can be in this sort of contentious relationship and, and have a sort of a fixation that there's this physical body here that is, that is, in a sense, desperate to have the next breath, really in need of the next breath. Fearful about not being able to get the next breath. Wondering if this way of breathing is the best way to breathe. That's what I mean by like having a contentious 
relationship with the moment. We can have a contentious relationship with our breath, especially as we start to pay more attention to it. You know, it's normal, it's fine, until someone asks us, or we ask ourselves to do mindfulness of breathing. And all of a sudden the breath is contentious and it's difficult. You know, all day long it's fine, you know. Don't even have to think about it, it just seems great. And then we have a quiet moment to sit. I'm sure I did in my last month-long retreat just in May, you know. I decided, you know, the Buddha made a big deal of mindfulness of breathing. I had never really taken up the Anapanasati Sutta, the discourse on the mindfulness of breathing, as practice instructions. For, so for that 29 days, I just did mindfulness of breathing religiously all day long, whether I was walking, as much as I could. I mean, of course, I got distracted, but... And as much as I could, I just took it up as a practice and um, see what I could learn following the instructions of the Buddha and, and other people. I had a couple other resources. Uh, Ajahn Tanisro has a series of talks, 15-minute talks on mindfulness of breathing. I used that. And I used Ajahn Brahm's book, Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond, about Anapanasati. And then my conversations with Joseph and Greg Scharf, the two teachers, and it was great. And one of the first talks I heard from Ajahn Tanisro, of course, was, you know, just beautiful teachings arising just when you need them. You know, bringing the four Brahma-Viharas to the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Why not? I mean, why, why do we feel we have to practice with our benefactor or with our dear ones or with ourselves? Why not also with the breath or walking or any activity will do? And that <clears throat> this is... You know, the, this is really the expression of the practice. The expression of freedom, you know, the freedom from contention, the freedom from ill will, is not only the practice, but it's also the fruit of the practice. And it's really tapping into this fundamental potential that we have. And it's always this chicken and egg thing, and we talked about it at the Have to Retreat on Saturday. You know, that right view, the easy way to right view, which always, we always have to begin our practice, or each moment of our practice, with right view. If we begin our, you know, the next moment of our practice, or the next moment of our meditation with greed, like striving to get something, or ill will, striving to control something, we're not going to get anything from our practice. We're just going to be you know, setting emotion more of the same, more tension, more ill-ease in the mind and body. So the easy way to begin again with right view is kindness. You know, I mean, it makes so much sense. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Who would argue with that? Some of you probably remember, I know most of you or many of you have read Jack Kornfield's book, Path with Heart. It's one of those, even for very experienced people, it's just a wonderful manual of the spiritual life, Path with Heart by Jack Kornfield. And in there, uh, you know, Jack Kornfield was a monk in Thailand for a number of years, about five, I think. And uh, during that time, he got to meet uh, Maha Gosananda, uh, one of the famous, best-known Cambodian monks and uh, he lived out the uh, end of his life uh, in Massachusetts not too far from IMS there was a Cambodian monastery in 
Massachusetts and he lived the last few years of his life there but you know you probably remember the Khmer Rouge um, communists they um, got rid of a lot of the institutions in Cambodia when they took over including the monks the monasteries and just devastated the country I don't know how many millions of people were killed by the regime but several million people it was a real genocide and a lot of the people uh, some of them at least 50,000 or more escaped to the to refugee camps on just on the other side of the border in Thailand and including uh, Maha Gosananda and Jack Kornfield went there once with him had befriended him and saw him as a teacher one of his teachers and was there once and in the camps in this one camp that had many thousands of people um, the Khmer Rouge had sort of an underground uh, network in the refugee camp so the people were frightened and uh, of course they <clears throat> were made to be communists you know by gunpoint and so uh, Gosananda got to the camp and he decided to set up a Buddhist temple there and of course people were frightened to come but they came anyway evidently 20,000 people in this refugee camp came for the dedication the opening of this temple and Jack Hornfield was there and um, Maha Gosananda gave the traditional chants and then started chanting first in Pali and then in Cambodian this um, short stanza from the Dhammapada that most of you have heard um, hatred never ceases by hatred but by love alone is healed this is an ancient and eternal law hatred never ceases by hatred but by love alone is healed this is an ancient and eternal law and he just chanted it over and over and then eventually most of the people were also chanting it and you can just imagine I mean most of these people of course lost members of their family their villages you know I mean just there's a couple really powerful documentaries of what happened in Cambodia and I, I don't think I've ever been more moved than by this one I, I wish I could remember the name of it I saw it years ago hmm? no not the killing fields although that's a pretty par- powerful film but there's a more of a documentary film about that whole devastation that I had no idea how many people died and just just the despair and uh, destruction of that whole culture so you can imagine people really getting into this I mean it's relatively easy for us but people who in a sense have every reason to be angry to give up to not believe in the power of kindness or the not have faith that it's even available that compassion and forgiveness and understanding so I just really I, I like that image uh, it's a useful image you know people who've had everything go wrong in their life and in their communities and uh, really appreciating that even so hatred never ceases by hatred but through love alone does it end this is an ancient and eternal law and I like that ancient and eternal law like there's no way around this law because what confuses our minds is that you know when you know especially the perfect situations are happen irritation and judgment and contention it just makes so much sense it just feels so appropriate to be judgmental or angry or you know all 
all the different kinds of expressions of it. Oh, well, it just makes so much sense. So the part of the purpose of the class and being together for these three weeks is to help each other, you know, to remind each other. Next week we'll have our small groups to remind each other how we're rediscovering in our own lives that this is in fact an ancient and eternal law that hatred never leads to the end of hatred. Ill will never is useful, never helps, never gives the heart what it really wants. And to kind of really get that in our bones, hearing from each other's experience, using our own experience, kind of tapping into what we're seeing and experiencing in our own lives and really getting that. Because it makes so much sense. I mean, I had a little experience even today, just a little irritation. I was so happy to see Wynne. She just got back from the nine-day retreat and I'd been on retreat for a month before then and Wynne was out there for the last two weeks. So haven't had too many interactions, you know. And just had a little interaction after lunch where just sort of pushed some of my buttons. You know, I, one of my tender spots is I, I just want people to sort of appreciate that I'm trying hard to be a good person. And so whenever I feel like someone doesn't appreciate that I'm trying hard to be a good person, maybe I wasn't, I don't know, but it's just like I get defensive. You know, it's like, I'm trying my best. (laughs) Don't you see? You know, and, uh, you know, just, and it just felt so appropriate to be hurt, you know, and to, and to kind of use, you know, I, it's, it's fine to be hurt, but then I kind of use it as a weapon. Like, I'm hurt. And, you know, not so much in a direct way, but still, in an indirect way. You know, and I wonder how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, wanting people to feel sorry for us or for me, you know, it's like, it's, it's really in a subtle way, but it's an act of violence. It's like... Do you see what you've done? You know, I'm hurt. I'm, I'm feeling harmed. And uh, something you did caused this. You know, not that I said that, but th- that's kind of what, what was underneath. And sort of using that as a weapon, you know, as if some, somehow I'd get what I need, that somehow I'd get the care that I think I need or the understanding that I think I need by doing that. You know, it never works. (laughs) All I got was my, you know, wet blanket of self-pity. That's all I got. It's not a satisfying feeling, as you all know. You know, and, uh, yeah, I I found myself eating cookies when I got to... Oh, my God. I noticed after I was eating, like, my third cookie, and I go, oh, this is interesting. I mean, something like that came up in my mind, like, oh... It was like part of that, like, self-pity. You know, oh, oh, this is like, is this going to help? No. You know, hatred doesn't end hatred. Hatred never leads, never ceases by hatred. This is an ancient and eternal law. This is one of my favorite quotes from Sharon Salzberg's book. It's one of the old uh, similes the Buddha used about metta, um, the kind of comparing it to water. 
So she says on chapter 2, which is called Relearning Loveliness. By contrast, the spirit of metta is unconditional, open and unobstructed, like water poured from one vessel to another. Metta flows freely, taking the shape of each situation without changing its essence. A friend may disappoint us, she may not meet our expectations, but we do not stop being a friend to her. We may in fact disappoint ourselves, may not meet our own expectations, but we do not cease to be a friend to ourselves. And this could be, you know, you might want to even write this down in some way that you'll remember. But like just making a commitment this three-week period that were our intention at least is to be a friend to everything you know to be a friend to any moment that we can remember to be a friend to and whether that means it's something external like somebody in front of us or some internal state or even something like our breath and as our formal meditation I would just keep doing what you normally do in your meditation practice what you like doing but what I would do is just actively you know specifically at least a couple times every of your sits but then more generally as often as feels appropriate reflect on all or at least one of the Brahma Viharas the kindness compassion appreciative joy and equanimity whatever seems most relevant just actively reflect on that in the context of doing the meditation you're doing so if you're just working with subtle sensations in the body then see, like, is, would friendliness support the meditation right now? Or would compassion, how might compassion support the practice? Or how might appreciative joy support the practice? Or how might equanimity support being more intimate, more alive, more real in the practice right now? And then, you know, in daily life for these three weeks, you might just uh, bring to mind like places where you tend to shut down, tend to be dead. Your practice tends to be dead. You know, like little things, um, like when you're reading the news. Like for me, that's sort of a dead time. You know, it's like I sort of shut down. You know, it's kind of like a... um, It's not really a a mindful, not easily a mindful activity for me. So, you know, can I bring these very alive, you know, uh, most of you know that four quarters chant, we chant, you know, where the Buddha talks about each of these four qualities as being exalted, immeasurable. Um, Let's see if I I think I have the, it's in the book. And by the way, the chant book's online at the website if you ever want to get any of these pages. But um, pervading an all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with each of these four qualities, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and ill will. So, you know, in certain parts of our life where we tend to be dead, where the mind-heart tends to shut down, where we tend to be an automatic pilot, we want to just remember like the possibility of the abundance of the heart, the immeasurable quality of the heart, a real alive, engaged experience, the heart engaging that you know, reading of the news. Not just doing it on automatic pilot as a way of shutting off the rest of my life. You know, we're using the news or using the entertainment 
or using whatever activity it is for you, you know, to sort of disconnect. Let's just see if we can do the opposite. You know, the, these four qualities are expressions of intimacy, an expression of being real, expression of being skillful. I mean, it's really like all the good things. That's what, these, that's what this path of loving kindness is about. So you might want to just pick a few places where you tend to be more disconnected. Maybe around certain people where you've just got this attitude of sort of um, like you've got to put up your guard or you've got to sort of play out an, uh, a particular role with that person and you're not really there. And then just like you did in your meditation, you just sort of can explore which of these four qualities might help make this experience more alive, more real, more full, more edifying, like we're having insight, seeing what we haven't seen so much, and more uh, energized. It doesn't mean always pleasant, but it will be healing. The, the realness of it, the connection, will make it healing, even if it's if it, if it, if it uh, feels a little uh, scary or intense or unpleasant. You know, like for me, actually showing up and reading the news, it would mean, like, it would mean feeling the loss of, like, not reading articles that are all about, you know, watering things that don't need to be watered. You know, watering lust or watering self-righteousness and you know well, I don't maybe I don't need to read about that celebrity you know or maybe I don't need to read about that politician getting his just desserts or something like that you know and then I'll have to experience the loss like there's sort of a where where am I going to get my entertainment or you know it's like oh I've got to just be here you know and uh and so that, but that might feel much more healing than just doing what I'm, the mind might be inclined to do in the habit of doing. And then the other thing that I, um, I thought we could really work on in these three weeks is to really tease out any kind of idealism we might have about loving kindness. I think that's really, for, for some of us at least, it will be especially important. Because, you know, either, probably, either we're going to be full on one side of the equation where we tend to, tend to gravitate towards cynicism and a, a distrust or a lack of faith or confidence that there is an essential goodness that we can recognize and, and sort of uncover in our lives. Or we tend to be sort of sentimental and idealistic about it and imagine something is sort of real and authentic and, and uh, immeasurable that's really some self-centered trip. So we need to, some of us especially, will need to really work on, on teasing that out. And I have a passage from one of Ajahn Sumedho's books where you know, he's got this great way of sort of grounding metta. Um, and you may not like it, but for some of you it might be really useful. This is his book, uh, The Mind and the Way. And uh, he has a chapter on loving kindness. The Way of Loving Kindness is one of the chapters in that book. He says there, 
Metta does not necessarily mean liking anything at all. It means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasant or faults of any situation inside or outside oneself. It doesn't mean we're not paying attention. It just means we're not dwelling on the unpleasantness. Sort of making a personal story or personal trip about unpleasantness. Now with metta, one isn't blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead, one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, thing, person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. You simply stop the mind from thinking, I hate it, I don't want it. That's what I mean, I'm sorry, that's what I consider to be metta. So that's sort of a very non-idealistic definition of metta. And then one more paragraph here. Somebody came to me just recently and said, I have trouble feeling metta for a certain person. Sometimes I just want to hit her. <laughs> Sometimes I just, I just want to do her in. I can't feel metta for anybody like that. And it's driving me crazy. I said, but you haven't hit her yet. You haven't killed her, have you? She responded, no. I said, then you are practicing metta. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And like it goes back to that story with uh, Maha Gosananda, this Cambodian monk, you know, just like really getting that acting out, taking a hold of our inclination to push away, to judge, to compare. Just understanding that that's not the way is the practice of metta. And not to need to make it flowery or to kind of lay a trip on us, like what, who we should be, how we should be, that's violent. Like, like uh, wanting ourselves to be something we're not, laying that trip on ourselves is an act of violence. I mean, it's subtle, of course, but it's not the path. The path is understanding that judgment isn't the way. Hating ourselves for being hating isn't the way either. But understanding that the mind is colored by hatred, that's the way. Understanding that it's like this now, and that's enough. Just because we see the force of anger or irritation or boredom or fear in the mind doesn't mean we have to do anything about it. We have this capacity to see it and to be with it without having to act it out. And that sometimes is uh, a profound act of kindness not to be acting out our irritation. And I did pretty good with Wynn this afternoon, you know. I smiled, I said something nice, she said something nice, and I left. You know? And, you know, I could have eaten more cookies. But I realized after, you know, I don't know, I don't want to tell you exactly how many, but that's enough. A couple more thoughts before I open it up to the group. So once, you know, practicing with that basic teaching the Buddha gave about the law, you know, 
this is the law. I remember Kamala tells that story about her teacher, Manindaji, when he was visiting at home and her family was some terrible argument between her husband at the time and her daughter. Just this full-blown, you know, wild argument and her Dharma teacher, beloved Dharma teacher, sitting there at the dinner table and her husband and daughter just like, like I, she thought her husband was, I think, going to break down the door. Daughter wasn't behaving or doing what she was supposed to be doing. And, and Manindaji turned to Kamala. I don't remember his exact words, but uh, like, this is the law. <laughs> you know, and the law is like uh, a, really an invitation like, this is how it is. You know, and just getting close, being intimate, that's all we have to do. And that reacting, like hating herself for having this family you know or hating the embarrassment or wherever she might have been in that moment you know wanting to fix it so that her teacher wouldn't see it or that all of that was extra not necessary but just being intimate in that moment you know and and the humility and the deep understanding that we're not in control and we don't need to impress and wanting or needing to impress anybody is dukkha, is suffering. So, you know, as we keep revisiting that law, you know, that hatred never ceases by hatred, we'll begin to notice something, a kind of, uh, you know, that lawfulness is a real insight and it, and it's, uh, it has a particular quality, you know, a softness or a, a universality you know it's like what do we mean by universal you know we talk about loving kindness as being universal goes everywhere like that image of the water you know the image the Buddha uses like water will perfectly fill any container or a loving heart a heart that's grounded in this capacity for kindness it will know how to respond we don't need a strategy like how Rob's going to deal with his teenage daughter Rob's been sharing in our Sutta study group recently about uh, just the poignancy of being with a teenager who you love and who's being a teenager. (laughs) And, uh, you know, how does metta, how do, well, we can't figure that out. Like, do we be, or should we be strict? Should we be, should we give in? You know, should we pretend we're angry? Should we, you know, how do we, we don't know. There's no way to figure that out, I think. But what we can know is that hatred isn't the way. And the more we touch that lawfulness in just moments, little moments here and there, and then with our pain in our body when we're sitting, it's like one of the great things about staying still in our meditation is that we're going to have the same confusion about how to relate to painful sensations as we do to difficult teenagers or difficult authority figures in our life or and we won't know we won't there's no sort of truth written in stone like how we should respond or how should we should handle this particular situation but we can know with great certainty that hatred isn't the way that's the great thing because there's not a lot that's certain but there are a few laws that I think are certain you know that we can really bank on like mindfulness always helps you know paying attention opening up seeing clearly is always useful 
And hatred never works. Now, we may act it out, but we shouldn't act it out with the understanding that it's going to help. You know, we act it out because the force of habit is stronger than the force of wisdom. And that's just how it is in this moment. So, honey, guess we're going to learn that hatred doesn't work. And so we take, you know, we accept those times when we are acting out our irritation. And we, use, we turn them into gold by seeing, in fact, it doesn't help. It doesn't actually work. And the more we get that, then we want to start, there's, there's something, there's a particular feeling of seeing that lawfulness. A kind of, uh, yeah, sort of a resonance. Um, Joko Beck talks about when ice, she has this little story in one of her books. She's a wonderful Zen teacher and has written a couple, I think maybe just two, that I know of at least, uh, wonderful books, uh, Everyday Zen and Nothing Special are the two books. And in one of them, I don't remember which one, she has this little chapter about ice, you know, as a metaphor for ourselves and how as ice, solid ice, frozen human beings, tight human beings, in our practice we discover our mushiness. We discover that inherently we're just water and maybe, you know, we're just vapor, <laughs> you know. Cause, because H2O, you know, it's... Uh, it's both ice and it's fluid water and it's vapor, it's gas. And once ice discovers its inherent mushiness, it's hard for, even when we're frozen again, it's hard to forget it. And this is something we can begin to recognize in our practice maybe is that, you know, even when we're really angry and irritated, and I, I, I kind of saw this today too in that little irritation I experienced, you know, even though I felt what I was feeling, I understood that I was sort of relying on an old strategy, you know, which is to use the uh, experience of being a hurt person as a way of teaching somebody a lesson and getting what I want, you know, which of course didn't work. <laughs> it's great living with someone who practices a lot. <laughs> and Wynn's getting really good at this. <laughs> you know, it's like, just kind of going on our merry way, <laughs> you know, and not not like not sort of pushing me away, but not kind of getting enmeshed in my emotion. And, uh, you know, it's like really great to sort of not sort of uh, have anything to bounce off of or to react to. And we're just left there and we have that opportunity to see, oh, yeah. You know, I don't need, I don't need to kind of keep getting established. I can just keep letting go. And it may keep arising, you know, it's got momentum, but keep letting go, keeping letting go. And it's like having an intuition for the inherent mushiness. So there we are, there's still irritation, but there's part of the mind, maybe a sliver, but part of the mind is knowing it's inherent mushiness. And that's really nice. And it gives us a lot of sort of staying power with... uh, the frozen parts of our conditioning, you know, the icy parts of our conditioning. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes left. It'd be nice. A lot of you have been practicing a long time, and even those of you who are brand new to practice or relatively new to practice, it'd be nice to hear what you're learning about loving kindness or anything I said or any questions you have. 
questions about how you might be practicing this week? What comes to mind? And uh, let's say our names. And remember, I don't have mine, but remember those of you who have name tags, you can wear your name tags. And you can also get a name tag by signing up the clipboard that's up by the name tags, which are all on the shoe rack. And uh, for the, especially for the Buddhist studies class, we like to kind of build community, as I mentioned. So it's just a good habit. Matt. Oh, Jenna. Oh. Um, he was pointing to you. Oh, um, well, first of all, I really like the talk because just coming out of retreat and practicing metta, I spent a lot of the sessions really trying to make something happen that wasn't happening or, you know, it just took so much effort to sort of whip up what I thought was metta. And so this other definition of metta is sort of refreshing and I think will be interesting to look at. But I'm wondering what the difference between metta and equanimity is, because that sort of Sumedho's definition sounds a lot yeah. like equanimity to me. Yeah. Well, think about the, these wholesome emotions. Like, they're really what allows the mind and heart to function in our conditioned state as you know, a human being with a body and a mind. And so to function skillfully, we need to be engaged. We need to be intimate with our life, with our conditions. And we need to be intimate without the uh, ice, without the frozenness, without the hardness. So there's just, uh, you know, there's really no difference between any of the qualities. It's just how that radical intimacy expresses itself so the difference between metta and equanimity is really like different moments that intimacy will look differently. But it's going to look differently because of the conditions of that moment, the particulars of that moment. Not that the heart's different, but the heart will express itself differently because it's, it's filling that vessel, that moment perfectly, appropriately, because it has no self-centered, no frozen thing that it has to protect. So our response, our way of connecting with the moment will be very fluid and perfect in a sense or appropriate in a sense. And so one moment might express itself as equanimity. Like just to give you an example, when Ajahn Tanisa, remember that talk I mentioned um, uh, where he talks about the four Bamba Faharas with uh, mindfulness of breathing. So for him, the way he did it is, you know, metta is just sort of a basic friendliness, like a a willingness to be close to the breath, to pay attention, to connect with the breath. And compassion is like, well, why not practice breathing in a way that makes the mind and body feel better? So that's the compassion is like an active participation with the breathing. Like we're not just sort of witnessing the breath like we often get for our instructions. But he really advises that you experiment. Now, sometimes as you experiment, you realize that hands off is the best way. But not always. Sometimes a more um, forceful engagement with the breath is actually going to make the mind and body relax better. And that's the compassion piece. The appreciative joy is when the breath is happening in a way it doesn't need any involvement. It's like really just moving easily and beautifully. And so we just appreciate 
the beauty of the breath doing its thing and uh, just the beauty of that it's happening on its own and it's just beautiful the breath and the, you know Ajahn Brahm actually has a whole section of the his um, instruction of mindfulness of breathing about seeing the beautiful breath and learning to see the beauty of the breath and then equanimity is when and I mentioned it briefly in the guided sit he talks about how when you can't <laughs> despite your good intention to make the moment better to help the mind be more relaxed more happy more clear you can't help but you still can be equanimous with the breath or with the situation so that's how it manifests so you can use that in your daily life too it's like equanimity is the way you're intimate in your life situation when you don't know how the hell to make it any better than it is you know and it's a little crazy like you know in your situation you know it's like when you don't know how to respond you at least you can be equanimous like I'm here I'm the dad <laughs> and I don't know what to do and so whatever I do is going to be okay because I don't know what's right you know and I'm impartial to whether I lay down the law or I give in because I don't know and then we can practice equanimity and we'll just learn okay I'll try this and we'll see if it works and then I'll use that information in the next time something like this happens so there are, is a place for equanimity yeah mm-hmm. I'll try to find the link to that talk um, so people who want to who use uh, mindfulness of breathing and can kind of work with it more directly remind me at the end and I'll write that down and I'll find it yeah Gail and um, I was learning once again the uh, pain of um, attachment and aversion <laughs> and uh, still experiencing that. But um, the mind was learned pretty much not to react to that, discussing it. But um, what you said about um, I don't know what to do, may I just stay close? Yeah. Yeah, I. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I'm practicing, you know, especially on long retreats, I I really get to the place where I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, in the past, not so much now, really strong doubt could come in, like, oh my God. <laughs> and uh, but I really, I really appreciate those moments now. Because I realize it's, it's purifying a part of my mind that needs to be in control. And, and it, that part of my mind could never get purified without the experience of feeling helpless. And being in moments where I feel helpless, sometimes it kind of my role here as a leader and sometimes in my meditation practice, uh, when my mind is been particularly, you know, particularly... Uh, not obeying me <laughs> and uh, and I, I just I'm, I'm just now at the point where I can really they're still very difficult moments but I can really appreciate like that what I'm learning in those moments can't be learned in any other they, I need this experience to learn to not freak out you know to learn I can just be close like you said Gail yeah thanks for sharing that a couple more minutes if anybody else has some thoughts for the group. Yeah, Adrian. Um, I was just thinking about the 
that was glad to have right now. I'm in a very interesting situation dealing with lots of negative thoughts um, or irritation, I should say. I'm a nurse, and there's some, I'm a nurse, and a, you know, a union nurse, and uh, I've become highly involved in the union because I was strong enough to know what's going on here. And there's so many negative, like I said, irritation things going on. I have a lot of very dislike for certain things, right? you know, not specific people, but some that I've heard quotes of and all that, big corporate guys. So it's going to be, I've thought about my practice a lot recently and how I'm really disappointed in how all this negative energy is just flowing through me. Mm-hmm. It's like I've experienced tears of anger, I've experienced tears of joy and solidarity in people, but it's just a mix of emotions, you know. I've been working hard for it. I'm Mr. Yard Sign guy trying to get people to play the yard sign supporting the nurses. So anyway, shameless plug in there. I'm gonna find it interesting how this is all gonna play out for me. A lot of the things you already spoke about is good advice for me right now, but my head's spinning with all this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I gotta do what I gotta do, and uh, I don't know. So that's just, it's nice to vent in this too with all of you. Like, yeah. A lot because, I don't know, it just is. I'm really struggling. Yeah, and our, our, you know, capitalism, our economic system, really, it's like built on this sort of uh, competition of power, you know, and uh, it's hard to participate in that without the mind getting caught in. I think it's possible, but I think it's especially hard in that, you know, the story, Joseph told it recently, when I was, he was teaching when I was out at the Forest Refuge, and he told a story he's told many times about a time he was with Menindadri, the person I mentioned earlier with Kamala. And uh, he taught at uh, the Burma Vihara, the sort of Burmese um, practice place, Bodh Gaya, the, birth, the place of the Buddhist enlightenment. And uh, Joseph would accompany him to the village market sometimes. And he'd see his teacher haggling over a few cents for peanuts. And... One time, Joseph asked, you know, you talk us talk to us about equanimity. You know, here you're throwing a fit about a few cents worth of rupees. And and uh, Manindaji said, I, I taught you to be, I forget exactly this word. Anybody remember the words? It's like, you know, you're supposed to be mindful, not an idiot or something like that. <laughs> that somehow you can be in the world of haggling without the mind getting bound up by it, you know. And that's, you know, that's obviously postgraduate level practice, but I think we can all appreciate how difficult it will be. We'd look forward to hearing more in your report next week, maybe. Yeah, well, we're going to be reporting next Monday. Uh-huh. Good luck with it. So I think we should leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.
in appreciating the strength of this community, the collective wisdom, and how grateful we can be that we've been able to connect with these teachings through our teachers, and we've had the time and the health to put the practice into practice. And we can be inspired to cultivate wisdom and love as a deep way of caring for this life and a deep way of caring for each other. So may all of our lives support the happiness, the well-being, and the liberation from suffering for all beings without exception. May this be so. And see most of you next week. A couple people could make it tonight, but they'll be joining us next week. And as I mentioned, we'll have small groups. I'll send out an email uh, summarizing a few of the suggestions I made about practice. But I have that MP3 of Ajahn Tanisaro's talks, and it's one of the early talks. If anybody wants to listen to some of them, they're wonderful short talks all focused on mindfulness of breathing. And it's like one of the first three or four. If anybody wants to listen and maybe make a file of that MP3 that I could send out to people. That would be great. Um, just let me know afterward, and I'll get you that MP3. Put that on the website. Yeah, we could put it on the website. That would be great. So you put, maybe you could send it to Scott, and Scott would get it on the website. <laughs> and by the way, uh, if you want to use the website uh, to kind of access the talks, stands on retreat now um, with Mingya Rinpoche, but he'll put tonight's talk uh, next week when once he's back on the website, and we'll send the link out to the whole group. If you're not getting the emails. Uh, send me an email. I'll get you on the list. Or just go to BuddhaStudies.com.org. Oh, and you can register there to get on the list? No, or you can see the, oh, the messages are there, yeah. BuddhaStudies.org. Is it BuddhaStudies.org? Yes. Great. Good. Anything else for the community? Oh, we're doing our precept. Our, our refuge and precept recitation this Sunday. We call it our community, uh, quarterly community gathering. So we always have a potluck afterwards. So that's at 10:30. A sit, a short talk about the refuges and precepts. We do that formal, traditional recitation together, and then a potluck at 11:45. Feel free to come to both or one or either one. Maybe we'll see you on Sunday. Take care, everyone. Oh, and let me also remind you. <laughs> no, it's important. Andy Olensky is coming back. We're so grateful to have him come back. He's just a wonderful teacher, especially about bringing the traditional talks of the Buddha, the discourses of the Buddha, alive, making them really accessible. Um, and that's Sunday, the 18th or 19th, I forget, maybe the 18th of July. And now we're calling it a workshop. It's really just a talk and discussion, two hour, one to three that Sunday. But we're asking people to sign up so it, we don't have to turn people away for that. So if you want to come that Sunday, I really recommend it, one to three, Sunday the 19th or 18th. Uh, it's on the, the description is, but the sign-up's on the shelf in the entranceway. So you can go ahead and sign up right now if you want. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Welcome back to all the people who have been on retreat.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.